Section 22 of The Beginning of the Middle Ages by Richard William Church. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 10 Results of the Breakup of the Frank Empire, Arrangement of Europe, the Papacy, New Kingdoms of France and Germany, Italy, the Scandinavian and Slav nations, Part 1. The effect of the breakup of the empire of the Franks under Charles the Great was twofold. It produced at once immense disasters, and it led ultimately to new and healthy national divisions, adapted to the changed condition of Europe and fruitful in great results. The disasters were great. For the moment, the West relapsed into the confusion and lawlessness from which Charles had partially reclaimed it. Within its borders all was incessant war, a universal scramble for territories and dignities among great and small, kings and dukes, bishops, counts, and abbots. There were vicissitudes of success or overthrow, continual changes of borders and lordship, continual and vain efforts after peace and law. Without, new and formidable forms of barbarian attack appeared. As we have seen, the second great tide of barbarian invasions had begun more and more to distress and alarm the West, now entering on the early stages of its civilization. Besides the Northmen, increasing in numbers and in their enthusiasm for adventure, who were the terror of the sea coasts from the Elba to the Mediterranean, where the work of ravage and plunder was taken up by the Saracens, a strange and terrible foe had appeared on the eastern border toward the end of the ninth century. This was the horde of the Magyars, the Ungrians, Ungri, like the Huns, of the Turanian and Turkish stock. And like the Huns whose name they inherited or with whom they were confounded, described as frightful and ferocious savages, sweeping like a destroying storm over the lands which they visited. Germany and Italy were most exposed to their desolations. They were sometimes called in, with reckless and disloyal selfishness, to assist one German or Italian duke or count against his rival, and once tempted into Germany, they rode, wasting, burning, slaying through Germany even to the heart of Gaul. The Hungarians, or Magyars, were, after the Northmen, the great scourges of the ninth and tenth centuries. The power, the union, and the military capacity of the Carolingian kings were unequal to the work of controlling these savages. The fatal policy was adopted with the Magyars as with the Northmen, of buying them off for the time, a policy which ensured their speedy return, more eager and audacious than before. With internal division and anarchy, and the fury of northern and eastern savagery let loose besides, the times were bad. The hopes and comparative order of Charles's days were departed. In that time, says one of the analysts, the kingdom of the Franks was very desolate, and the unhappiness of men was multiplied daily. In many ways, wretchedness and calamity increased among men. Amid this misery and confusion, the internal condition of society fell back. Charles's policy for strengthening the influence of the church held its ground, but not his plans for reforming and purifying it. 
great ecclesiastics were among the most powerful personages in these times, and some of them, like Hinkmar of Reims, 801-882, were not unworthy of their power. But with power and great place came in worldliness and corruption in increasing proportion as time went on, and though as statesmen these great bishops were probably not worse counsellors, and often were more intelligent ones, with a natural leaning to order and peace, than the rough dukes and counts with whom they acted, yet the meaning and consciousness of their religious office became more and more lost in their secular greatness. They were not only bound to military service for their vast domains, but in spite of the stringent prohibitions found in the capitularies, they went to war themselves. Within thirty years, we are told, toward the close of the ninth century, two archbishops and eight bishops died on the field of battle by the side of counts and lords. It is no wonder that their offices came to be regarded as temporal dignities which the king had a right to bestow, and by which he rewarded and bound his adherents. And it is no wonder that, as in the days of Charles Martel, only with increasing freedom, the revenues and titles of archbishoprics and great abbeys were accumulated on some great lay potentate like the Duke of Paris, some formidable warrior like the lay abbot of saint Riquier, or some child of a powerful noble like Herbe of Vermondois. The step so remarkably gained for culture and for intelligent study of religion under Charles were not absolutely lost. In the great German schools founded or encouraged by Charles the Great, Fulda, St. Gall, and Reichenau on the Lake of Constance, at Old Corbet on the Somme, and at Saxon colony New Corbet on the Weser, and in Gaul, at Reims, and Orléans, the habits of study and the taste for learning were kept up. German unwritten tradition was rich in legend and songs of war and adventure. But German literature began in these cloisters, in the ninth and tenth centuries, with Latin and German glossaries, in translations of the Psalms and paraphrases of the Gospel story, such as the version of Tatian's Harmony, the metrical harmony called Heliant, the prose one of Otfrid, and Notger's Psalter. Nor was there wanting bold and subtle thought, well or ill-directed on philosophy and theology, in men like John Origena, Gottschalk, Pascatius, Rodbert, and his antagonist Rotram. And the first fruits of German erudition were seen in Robin Maurer, the Archbishop of Mainz, and his scholar Walfrid Strabo all of them men of the ninth century, and most of them pupils at Fulda, Corbet, or Reichenau. But no appropriate advance was made. Missionary enthusiasm, which had done such great things under Pippin and Charles, sensibly waned, though it still achieved some new conquests among the Norsemen and the Slavs. And that which was the dark side of Charles's character in times, loose ideas of the sanctity of marriage and the obligations of purity and self-control grew into increasing lawlessness and disorder in the times which followed him except in the strict discipline of the cloisters when the cloisters were well governed license reigned and the families of the great bishops were as scandalous as the courts of the kings and dukes there was a power in the church which might have been expected to bridle this flagrant laxity 
the more so as its claims to supreme authority were at this very time rising to their full height. The fall of the Carolingian power is marked by a remarkable and coincidence expansion of the central power in the Church. The power of the popes, which Charles the Great had done so much to encourage and strengthen, which had depended on his aid and had lent itself in return to his great plans, grew into a hitherto unknown strength, as the imperial system which he had founded broke up in the hands of his successors. From being submissive and obsequious under Charles, the popes became imperious and exacting under his children, and their enormous pretensions, spiritual and temporal, were supported by the appearance and reception of the great forgery known by the name of false decretals, a collection of precedents professing to belong to the early centuries and establishing the uncontrolled power of the popes not only over the whole organization of the church but over every other earthly authority in pope nicholas i in the middle of the ninth century eight fifty eight to eight sixty seven this idea of the popedom found its determined and energetic exponent and though met and resisted with equal boldness as by hincmar of rheims he undoubtedly established the foundations on which by natural sequence the pretensions of Gregory the Seventh, noble in purpose though extravagant and mischievous, and those of Boniface the Eighth, extravagant and mischievous but not noble, were afterwards to be built. The growth of papal interference was to be aided by the anarchy and license which prevailed in every department of life. That interference might have been more justified if it had been wisely and righteously exercised. The laxity of the marriage tie and the monstrous facility of divorce had long been one of the plague spots of the Frank kingdom. The popes, as Nicholas I, did sometimes interpose their rebukes and their menaces, but their interposition was rare and partial. It passed over the strong and dangerous and fastened on those whom it was not unsafe to attack. It entangled itself with the political hostilities of the time and it too readily accepted hollow compromises to save appearances. The quarrel of Nicholas I with Lothar II of Lotharingia about the ill-treatment of his wife was made up under his successor, Hadrian II, in 869, by an arrangement of which all parties must have known that its basis was falsehood. But this was not the worst. Much inefficiency and some compromises were not unnatural and almost inevitable in these confused times. But the century which saw the pretensions of the Pope growing to their most audacious height saw at its end the Popes themselves reduced below the level even of the blood-stained and licentious princes of the time. Rome, the city, the sacred office, had been fought for, had been won and lost by fraud, by corruption, by violence, by murder, more than once in the recent times. But now, for more than half a century, the influence of three women of infamous character, in league with ambitious nobles and profligate churchmen, was paramount over the throne of the Vicar of Christ. In the hands of the Marquises and Dukes of Tuscany, of the two Alberics, Lords of Camerino, of the Council Crescentius, and the Roman democracy, 
and at last of the Counts of Tusculum. The popedom bought and sold and rapidly passing from hand to hand by bloody revolutions or political intrigues was treated as the inheritance or prize of whatever family or adventurer happened at the moment to be strongest in Rome. The wickedness and vileness which gathered round the Roman see in the ninth and tenth centuries are, with one exception, and that is the repetition of them in a more enlightened time, under Sixtus IV, Alexander VI, and Leo X, one of the most revolting profanations recorded in the history of the world. It seemed as if the popedom would share the fate of the empire of Charles the Great, that the great office with its venerable traditions and its overweening claims would sink under the weight of its degradation and shame, and that the system of which it was the keystone would break up and perish. Two things saved it at this turning point of its history. One was the revival under Otto the Great and his successors of the imperial authority, with claims to chastise and correct abuses, to crush anarchy, and to enforce order. At the price of the independence and the political hopes of Rome and Italy, the emperors of the Saxon line, by imposing their yoke on the papacy, prevented it at last after a hard struggle from becoming the heritage of the petty nobles of the neighborhood of Rome. They did not reform the popes, but they preserved the European character of the popedom. The other cause that saved it was a moral one. It was the growth and spread of a strong spirit of austere reform of manners in the church itself. This was specially embodied in the great monastic order or congregation of Cluny at the beginning of the 10th century, which had for its object the revival of purity and strictness in ecclesiastical life, and which spread with strength and rapidity throughout Europe. It was from men imbued with the spirit and severity of Cluny, Leo IX, and Hildebrand, afterwards Gregory VII, that the internal reform came which not only saved the papacy from becoming an Italian prince-bishopric, but made it at once, for good and evil, the great center of spiritual power in the Middle Ages of Christendom. End of section 22